Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Liz Wilson. Today's episode is part two in a series we're calling The Water We Grew Up In, in which Liz and I explore the layers of low-key racism and misogyny in our culture. In our last episode, Liz led us through examples of misogyny. This episode, I will lead us through a conversation about race and racism. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on all the major podcast channels. Also, be sure to check out our sponsor, Cannibal & Co., located in downtown Jersey City and at shopcannibal.com. We're grateful to Cannibal for sponsoring our show. It wasn't actually recently. It was was several months ago, but uh, I guess that's still recently. Um, And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and a white dude and um, nice guy, good friend, all that. and uh, and and he was talking about a place I don't want to call him out, but he's talking about a place where he goes, and it's a kind of environment where there aren't all ten, ten, there there tends not to be a whole lot of black people, right? That historically white male environment, um, which is everything, I guess. But I mean, <laughs> but uh, but still, um, and, and and he's like, you know, and he's talking and, and talking to me about his experience there, and he's like, you know, and there's a. a African American there, <laughs> there as well, and I'm like, and I, and, you know, and, <laughs> and when someone says that, um, even if they say it in a way that is, um, you know, uh, that in a way that is not that stilted, because this came out like super stilted and awkward. And, um, and, but even when, when someone uses that, like when speaking to me casually, it comes off as a, as a person who, who is absolutely uncomfortable talking about race, who is 100% uncomfortable talking about it, who, um, will avoid it at all costs. And when they do tiptoe around it, they're walking on eggshells and they say things like, uh, my African American friend. And I'm like, dude, like black people, you're, it's okay to say, you know, your, your friend who is black. Your friend, you, you know, um, a person of color who's my friend. Person of color is great, right? Person of is color it? is a great that way. That was my to, other question. I think person of color is really good. It, it's better. I think it's a good way to be. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it's a good way to be for, more formal about it while not sounding like you are talking about uh, like you're you're talking about a uh, like a. Uh, a study that you read recently, you know what I'm saying? Well, because that's what it comes across as, right? right. That you're talking that you're talking about, like study that you watched or saw recently. Yeah. Um, another one that's another one. Uh, there's another one that I that that came to mind. There's African American. There's, uh, but you know, but the people who I who I know are like really. I mean, I know. I, I'm sure you feel this from the position of a woman as well, and that's sort of a lot of the theme that we talk about on this show. But you know. I know when I'm talking to somebody whether or not they're comfortable talking about race. I mean, they don't, they can't hide it from me. It, it's very obvious. It's very clear. And that's not even the same thing as saying, like, I also know when someone, a white person, is naturally uncomfortable talking about race because it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but is down with the program and gets it, right? And so those people say black people. They say black people. That's what they say. They say, and that's what we say. We say black people, right? So, um, and it doesn't come off. That's not offensive. Um, you know, what's really offensive is blacks, right? And of course, the blacks is just right. outright. That's just racist, right? Like that's just racist. <laughs> I but mean, like, it's for, like the gays. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The gays, right? And like, gay people can say that. 
Sure. Right. Right. And and they do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They do mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, but that's not for me to say. Right. No. <laughs> if I ever say the gays, it's always in air quotes because yes, I'm referring exactly. to how someone else. Yeah. But I hear you. I hear you. How about black folks? That's another great one. Yeah. Black I folks. Like that. Mm-hmm. Black folks. Um, uh, not gender nonconforming folks. Um, gay people. Right. And, and again, I and if I was talking to a gay person, if I were talking to a gay person, when I am talking to a woman. Um, about issues I want to, and there is a natural sense of walking on eggshells, right? Because I am a person who wants to get it right. I'm a person who doesn't want to offend. Um, but I also don't want to talk about people in this clinical way, like as if there's some entity out there that we're like all talking about, you know? Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Like when the, uh, when I feel like I started becoming more aware of racial stuff, um, you know, sort of like in the early Trump era, <laughs> uh, one of the things that I had heard from a lot of black activists was when you say all these other things, African-American, person of color, it just feels like you're trying to avoid saying black. And it's like, you're so self-conscious and you're using all these fancy words and it's just like, just say black. We call you white. You can call us black. It's not derogatory. That's right. Um, But you know, you're not a monolith. So that's why I wanted to ask you how you felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that. I mean, you know, if you are uncomfortable saying black people or, I mean, it's probably because you live a life that is completely separate from black right, people, right. right? And and that's probably what that is, right? And um and so I think that it really calls that person out as someone who's very very uncomfortable talking about race. And I've said this before um and I have really right, I think to your point, I think 2016 was a real turning point for all of us, mm-hmm. right? Um I think that even as a black person and as a person who thought as him thought of himself historically as an activist for a very long time um or an activist minded person at least um and of course when you're black you can't not think about race, right? I mean that's sort of the experience. So obviously that's been my whole life, but uh, 2016 was a game changer, right? It was suddenly like I realized suddenly that I wasn't living in the country that I thought I was living in. I always knew there was racism in America. Every person knows that. Every thinking person knows that. But you, not like this, right? And so that was a real turning point for me. And and it has been a real... And then, of course, 2020 with the George Floyd protest was a real game changer for, uh, for anyone who cares about this stuff. Um, and so um, since then, I've really... And... and, and I've only evolved even further where I've gotten to the place now where in 2016, I what I would have allowed from a black, a, a white friend in my life is radically different than what I would have, I would allow from a white friend in my life today, right? Yeah. I just don't have time for it. If you are a kind of person who say who, who's uncomfortable talking about blackness and talking about race and talking about the issues that are just so obviously going on right now. And by the way, I mean, do you follow me on social media? Because Jesus Christ. <laughs> Have we met? And the thing is, like, I'm not going to talk about it for no reason. Right. I don't bring it up out of thin air. Like, I'm like, I think, I think, <laughs> you know, what's really interesting is that a lot of people, like, I haven't seen them in forever. They hang out with me. And the first thing they start talking about is politics and race and racism. I'm like, you know, I, I talk about other stuff, you know, like, this is not, like, I, I, I seem one dimensional, I, ima- I imagine, or three dimensional. 
when I was like on social media, motorcycles, cats, and social justice, <laughs> right? Like that is who I am, right? But like, so people always think that's all I ever talk about. But in fact, I'm into other stuff. <laughs> but anyway, that was like, I think that's a great question. Um, I don't know, it's kind of a hard question to answer, I imagine. But is there like a similar way of talking about women on the on the other side? It's like, I mean, how or or maybe the better a better question is, how do you deal with in your life when you come up across somebody who's in, who's unenlightened let's say about feminism and about women's issues i mean like how do you deal with that do you like i mean generally speaking well it depends on the context really but i haven't honestly had too many experiences like in my face um but there are some people in my life, well, they're, you know, in my periphery that I just, like you're saying about when you know people are uncomfortable talking about race, when people, <laughs> when people are um, not where I'm at in terms of awareness of patriarchal issues, you just, you just know. And, um, I generally just try not to have them in my life because I just can't tolerate it. Like that's really the biggest thing. It's just like, I'm tired, you know? And there was a time in my life, in my twenties, when I was like super unaware of a lot of things that I was still trying to be like the, the cool girl, you know? So I would just kind of like roll with it. I wouldn't say anything. I'd laugh at the dumb jokes. I just don't, I don't have the energy for it now. So like, I will call it out if it comes up, but generally speaking, I just try to avoid it because it's, uh, why, that's not my job to fix that person. You know what I mean? That person can go fuck off and die. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you and you know, it really is, and I, what you said really hit home. I just don't have time for it anymore. I am tired. Um, life is ex absolutely exhausting. Yeah. And um, I just don't really have time for any of that anymore. And so, yeah. you know, and I, and, and I also don't, and, you know, I used to think that it was my job. This is important what you said. That it was somehow my job to sort of fix these people, right? Mm -hmm. That as a black person, as a, mm -hmm. as the representative of exactly. uh, like in this group that it was up to me to sort of convert this person it's like no it's absolutely not it's absolutely not like right. I, I that is not my job even if it were my job i wouldn't do it um fuck capitalism i'm not doing mm -hmm. my job um you know mm -hmm. no um, one's paying me to do this no one's this paying is me to do this um, and i think that this sort of dovetails a bit into what we're talking about today right because um i want to start by talking about the um John Stewart piece. Um, if if mm. you are the recent John Stewart piece, if if you're a progressive, uh, and he was talking to a conservative Oklahoma State uh, 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 legislator, and he really just dismantles this guy, right? And it's absolutely glorious. It's absolutely glorious, and it's gratifying. And if you haven't seen it, you should go see it immediately. But um, you know, John Stewart really is, as they say, a national treasure that we should protect at all costs. Um, that's like a thing people say on social media these days, right? I mean, I'm not the only one who sees that. Like, the, that's something that comes up a lot. Um, people say, uh, people say anytime someone like this happens. Anyway, and, and, and he is. John Stewart definitely, definitely is one of those people. Um, but I bring up this interview to highlight uh, one of the 
bogus defenses that um, that this state legislator, his name was um, state senator, Oklahoma state senator Nathan Dom, and um, uh, Mr. Dom. Uh, brings up this sort of bogus defense. Um, Sorry, Mr. Dom. Mr. Dom. All I can think of is like a dominatrix. <laughs> That's perfect. That is perfect. Although he's more of a sub, I would say. I think hey. he's probably more of a sub. Hey, Mr. Sub. I'm going to start calling him Mr. Sub. Okay, great. So Mr. Sub identified um, as the reasons that gun violence is such a problem in the United States, right? He says he's got these reasons. He doesn't think that the problem is... The hundreds of millions of guns, obviously. It's not, it's never the guns. He also doesn't think that it's people's unfettered access to guns in the United States, right? He thinks the problem is bad parenting. And specifically, specifically, Liz, he thinks that it's fatherless families oh. that are the problem. So, Liz, I want to ask you, what images do you think... <laughs> Mr. Sub is conjuring in <laughs> listeners' mind when he refers to, quote, fatherless families. I don't know what you're talking about. That could <laughs> definitely not be a code for black people. <laughs> How could it possibly be that? I know. He's just talking about, you know... The thing that happens to everybody sometimes. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Definitely not people who had kids with welfare queens. Oh, oh that's perfect. And <laughs> right, and uh, with welfare queens. And, and by the way, Liz, you're the racist for bringing this up. Why are you making this about race? Is this Correct. a race card issue for you? You know, what? it's because I'm liberal and everything is about identity politics for ah, me personally. Ah, ah, That's what it is. I yes. see. I'm the I one see. who's insisting that we focus on this. Of course, of course, not of course. Not you, Mr. Sub. Not not you, Mr. Sub. And, you know, look, this argument is a perennial racist trope as we are identifying here. And conservatives trot it out all the time, right, to mm -hmm. deny systemic problems. It's And it's never the system that's the problem. And we talk about this all the time on the show. It's the individual. So therefore, we don't, as a society, have to do anything about it, except for maybe, and this is like sort of classic conservatism, let's crack down on the individuals, right? Let's go and arrest them, right? Let's go throw them in prison. That will solve sure. our problem. But not all of them, only the ones who don't look like us. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and, in the context of gun violence, and this is what I want to bring up, like the trope, and I think this might be a little bit of a hidden, a hidden problem in our discourse, right? And because in the context of gun violence, I think that the trope satisfies two different narratives. First, right, as I've said, it denies the existence of systemic problems. But I think this is the more interesting part, is that it also takes, and this is, I guess, what we're talking about, it takes like the racist stereotypes about black fatherhood, combines them with this sort of deep white fear of black men. And it changes in the listener's mind, the image of the person who's doing the shooting and the killing, right? So all of a sudden, we're not talking about Dylan Roof. Now we're talking about gangbangers and MS-13. I think it's like a really interesting rhetorical sleight of hand, right? It clears the way for the listener's confirmation bias to conclude that, yeah, you know what? Guns aren't the problem. It's delinquent blacks and Latinos that are the problem. And we know, right, mass shootings, these aren't happening in gang banging situations. Like right, that, like, right, they're happening in schools, right? That they're happening in supermarkets by like white guys, right? You know, radicalized white guys, but we don't want to have the conversation about that. So even if we take the conservative 
conservative track and we're like, look, all right, this is an individual problem, not a systemic problem. Well, then let's talk about the individuals, right? But no, but no, but now we're not talking about the individuals that are actually doing this, right? Which is like domestic violence. This is domestic violence, right? A lot of people die that way from gun violence. Um, we're talking about school shootings. We're talking about mass shootings in general. And and again, like we're changing the conversation from that, which is the actual problem, to inner quote inner city violence in Chicago, which is a perennial boogeyman for mm. the right. You know, um, what do you think? Am I off base there? Ooh. There is so much here. Um, I ended a friendship with somebody mm. who I have been friends with for 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, last year after the shooting in um, Texas at the elementary school, um, he commented on something that I posted and I don't even remember what it was, but I just know that it led to us like, you know, going offline to have a conversation. And I just got so infuriated with his refusal to, to actually like have a, have a respectful and logical conversation he started bringing up abortion, talking about how we were okay killing innocent oh babies. God. But I mean, I that's when I was like, okay, perhaps we have grown too far apart. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, anyway, my point is that one of the things he brought up in this conversation was, look at Chicago. Always. They have one of the, you know, Illinois is like, one of the hardest place to buy places to buy guns and uh, and it, look at all the violence they have and you know i kind of tried to point out the surrounding states do not have the same level of difficulty in purchasing firearms um but that wasn't he didn't care he wanted to focus on inner city blacks killing blacks exactly um, and again i just feel like the, it's the I, I, I'm sure there is a term for it, but you you see it happening. I saw it happen in, in this um, interview that you started talking about at the top with Jon Stewart. So Jon Stewart asked him if uh, taking away, banning drag shows was infringing on freedom of speech. And the guy started saying, well, why can we, why don't we let kids vote? And Jon Stewart ignored that and continued to ask his question because that is what they do. There's the whataboutism. There's the shifting. And like it's like they have like a kernel of what you're saying, but they actually are like drawing you into a completely different conversation that doesn't answer anything or actually address the larger issue. And that's what you're talking about, I think, is that what they're doing is now they're making this about race. They're making about this, this about the others, the other groups. And it's that thing. It's always these groups of people who have less power in our society and they're the perfect targets because they can't defend themselves. They don't have the resources to pay for the lawyers or the money. They don't have the same access to things that the power group has. And so they can't fight against it, you know? So it looks, the optics are that the power group is smarter and better and correct. 
because exactly. they're louder. They're louder. And I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I'm, and that's why I really wanted to hit this is, you know, it is an unbelievably dishonest tactic to rather than debate the topic, to make it about something else. And the individual, right, we know that most Americans, like something like 80% of Americans agree on sort of basic gun regulation, right? You know, background checks, et cetera, like that. It's, it's, it's unbelievably high. It's unbelievable. Like there's very few things you can get Americans to agree on, any group of people. And this is one thing we can all agree on. Um, it's like saving children, right? I mean, and 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 taking steps to do that. But, you know, so that's what the conversation is about. So when anybody tunes into that, like even a conservative or someone or a moderate is going to look at this and say, wow, we need to do something about this, right? That, that is definitely going to happen. But what they do is they give the person a hook to hang their skepticism on, right? Because they're 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 coming into this conversation being like, well, the, uh, the evidence is overwhelming. Like, we obviously have to do something about this. But they say, oh, no, 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 don't worry. You can fill, uh, you can, uh, you can satisfy that confirmation bias that what you already want to know, you really want it to be that it's not people like you that are causing the problem. You want that to be true. They will serve that up for you. They will serve that up for you and say, you know, oh no, uh, it's actually those people that you already think are bad, that you already hate, that you already dehumanize, right? That are causing the problem. And, and some of the themes we talk about here all the time are dehumanization. We talk about systems. And this is like a perfect way to deflect from systemic solutions to an individual framework. And then you can blame the individual that is not like you. And it's just like a one, two, three punch in its classic conservatism. Yep. But that's not even the most interesting part of this, I think. And this goes to what we talked about at the bottom, at the top of at the, uh, on our last episode. And I want to hit it again. This idea of images flashing across your mind that you're not even fucking aware of because you and I know that that conservative tactic is bullshit. We know that. And people like us know that, right? Even people who are not as active and progressive and thoughtful as we are know that. But still, Liz, when he says that, those images flash across our minds. They do. They do. And if you're, and I don't, and I, and I think you're being dishonest, not you personally, but I think you, general you, is mm -hmm. are being dishonest with yourself if you, if you don't think they do. That's why they say, I mean, they don't know that's what's happening, but that's what's happening. And so what it does is plant a seed kernel of doubt. Well, yeah, but. You know, the, the, those, those, the, but yeah, the, but there's a, uh, those people in Chicago really are violent, aren't they? Mm, you know, mm -hmm. and so even though I might have that pop into my head and I might then push it out, it came. And that's the point. That's the point here that I want to make. And that is that and that we talk about on the, in this series, we're talking about the hidden elements of racism, the hidden elements of white supremacy. And I think. Again, and I, I probably will say this every damn show for the rest of all time, but like I think it is incumbent upon any of us and all of us to become aware of those thoughts, you know. Um, but anyway, so um, another way I want to think about this, though, and I wonder how you think about this, Liz. Um, so this is the United States of America, as you know. Um, <laughs> we are human beings, as you know, and so in the end. Every social and political issue is always about race. And I can't, and I want to repeat that 
right? Why are you making about race? Why are you making the race card? You know, and that's because this America, this country is found like everything, every step of this of this of America's history is laden with racism. It's just how it is. I mean, it's the blueprint, baby. It's the blueprint. It's the water we live in. It's the water we live in. So I can't say that enough. But um, it's inescapable. Still, I do want for the moment to do a little of uh, a little Bernie Sanders pirouette here. I want to move away from a critical race analysis of Mr. Sub's comments and instead do <laughs> Mr. Sub. Okay, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> and, and, and I want to pivot uh, to an anti-capitalist critique of his comments, right? So let's leave race out of this, which is hard for me to do, but let's leave race out of this. Um, so uh, so if, if let's think about this, if absent parents in general are um, at the root of violence in the United States, then it stands to reason, I mean, if we are serious about solving the problem anyway, which we know conservatives are not, but that's beside the point, this is a thought experiment. It stands to reason that we should try to figure out why parents are absent. Like, right? I mean, and I don't know. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, Liz, and I cannot for the life of me figure out why. I just can't figure out what sort of 40 to 80 hour a week obligation could possibly interfere with quality family time. I mean, I wonder why, oh, why aren't parents available to tuck their kids in at night so often? I mean, now, Liz, what is your answer to that question? And why is it capitalism? I'm enjoying the level of sarcasm in this episode. (laughs) Uh, Well... (laughs) I think the fact that when, I mean, this is all super obvious to you and I, but let's just lay it out, right? Sure. The system is built up. It is designed so that you can no longer sustain a household on a single income from a single job in this country, unless you are, you know, a CEO who makes millions of dollars a year. Um, So the reality is whether you're a single parent or you have two parents, everybody has to work. Um, And if you're a single parent, forget it. You got to work at least two jobs, maybe three or four, right? Right. Especially if you're working at a level where you're making uh, minimum wage, which also, you know, let's talk about maybe or not, maybe not now, but (laughs) the fact that minimum wage jobs are considered to be uh, low skill jobs and don't deserve adequate compensation. But yeah, so that's why. That is why, my friend, people have the experience of children not having a parent around because they have to work that much in order to have just the very basic needs met, meaning like food and shelter and clothes might even be a bonus, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Transportation might even be a bonus. Um so the fact that there's no basic safety or not safety net, but social support system where everybody is getting a bare minimum of needs met, then you're going to have a system where people are working ridiculous numbers of hours and they're not, a, they're not around. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and so it's like it's really astonishing and galling, really. I mean, I was being sarcastic throughout this because sometimes that's like Gallo's humor is sort of, you know, when when you're thinking about this stuff, right? Because you got this guy, um, you know, Mr. Sub up there talking about yeah, like, you know, oh yeah, absent parents are the problem, right? I mean, there's bad parenting, absent parents and it's like, all right, like well then, the next step is why and why can't we, you know, and look, if, if people have to work 50, 60 hours a week and um, then we shouldn't be surprised when parents are not able to be fully present for their for uh, for their kids. And um, and look, I mean, there's different ways of being present for your kids. I mean, you know. It's not just about physical presence, it's about mental and emotional presence, right? If you're out there struggling, trying to survive, right? Living in poverty, living in poverty, you're exhausted. That is like fight or flight mode constantly. Like it's going to be difficult for you to be there fully emotionally for yourself, let alone for another young person, right? That's and right. that's why this cycle of poverty gets right. This is a cycle of poverty, right? And, um, and right. And so look, if you want, a kid, like, let's look at the real problems here. A kid like Dylan Roof, who's been radicalized by the internet. I mean, you know, and you want to talk about why his parents weren't there for him, right? Um, and I'm, tr and like, why weren't they there for him, right? And let's talk about the systemic problems that led to them being unable or to, to pay attention to what their kid was doing, right? And and we know white young men are being radicalized all the time online, all or, the time. And not and beyond even just having time to spend with him, but the fact that they, and I don't know anything about their situation, but just in a general sense, um, do they have tools to parent effectively? Or do they have even the tools to take care of their own emo emotional well-being, let alone support the growth of another human being. I think that the reality is that a lot of people in our generation, and especially in the older generation, self-care, self I'm using the, you know, but you know, like self-awareness, emotional health, um, that wasn't a priority. And a lot of people were raised in really fucked up situations and don't know how to parent. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you really want to solve these systemic problems and like, how about universal universal childcare? What about access to mental health services, right? Like these are the kind of things that can start to chip away at these large systemic problems. You're not going to solve them overnight, right? But that plus regulating guns a bit over time, you maybe you start to drag these numbers down, and look, we see we you know in other countries it it it's possible, it's possible. It's not like it's something that we can't do. We can do it, right? Um, and I think that's important. Another element I want to say to this, and um, you know that I think is specific to the black experience or the brown experience, I think, um, is just the toll, you know, just the toll, the mental and emotional toll that it takes to exist as a person of color in the United States, in, in the world. And I think that really does take away in a lot of ways, uh, potentially from the mental energy that parents have for other stuff. Um, and, and, and I mean, in my, I'm just to use my particular case for, as an example, which is not a really good case. It's a weird case, but you know, cause my parents, especially when they were doing it, they were growing up. They were like, my dad was in Princeton in the sixties as a black person, as a black person. Right. My mom was in Georgetown in the seventies as a black woman. Right. You know, trying to survive in those environments, like the pretzels that you have to, tw tw that I would have to like twist yourself into. Yeah. Like, I mean, I had to do that in, in the nineties 
and that was a piece of cake as compared to that. So I really think that, you know, that changes you. I, I, I can't help but think what kind of parents, what kind of people my parents would have been without having to carry that burden. And I think that that is true for anyone who is disadvantaged in any way is who could you, would you have been if you didn't have an oppressive parent, if you didn't have poverty, if you didn't like who, what was your real potential? Right. And then we point to the people who were, who were able to overcome that and say, see people overcome that. Yeah. But they're extraordinary. Like I'm not extraordinary. You know, most people are not extraordinary. That's what extraordinary means, right? Like they're extraordinary. They're people who- It's the exception. They're the exception, not the rule. So we can't legislate to the exception. We should legislate to the rule. Right. And so- and that's really, and we don't do that. And I think that, you know, to go back to what we talked about briefly last last week, uh, last episode, and we were talking about uh, right the experience of of um, of trans uh, trans women taking testosterone, and one of the positive things I realized is suddenly they have like overnight they got credibility in the workplace, like overnight. Overnight, they got a whole new level of credibility in the workplace. And it just goes to show like, what would a woman's potential, full potential be in a general, genuinely equal society? We can't point to Kamala Harris, point to Hillary Clinton, point and be like, look what they accomplished. Well, yeah, in spite yeah. of the problem. Right? In, these are extraordinary people. These are extraordinary And I ain't people. Hillary Clinton, baby. Right, right. Also, she is an incredibly um, accomplished, intelligent person and could not beat Donald Trump because she's right. got boobs. That's right. So, oh, that's you know, right. it's yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it it breaks my heart when I think about that and I think about the more that my I go through my own journey of of of, of seeing these layers you know, and these like things that I've never really um, interrogated before when it comes to race and gender um, about just the things that people have to face in their lives and the things they have to overcome or cope with. And it takes so much of their mental energy, you know, to do that dance. And when you think about what they could have, what their life could have been like without that, it really is, or what the world could have been like that if with what the world could have been like with their contributions, you know, if they were allowed to fully be themselves unfettered. Yeah. I mean, we basically, you know, we've been, we've built a world based on the contributions of a small slice of humanity. Like that's what we've built a world around. I mean, and and that's what gets venerated. That's what our history is. And first of all, it's not a comprehensive history at all of what of of people's contributions, right? We know women and black people have contributed to this country and have had their ideas stolen. They've had right. They have that. They are like there's so many examples of this uh, and things that we just didn't know, right? Um, um, and so, right? Who knows what it could have been. Do you have any final thoughts you want to throw in before we uh, close this down? I just think it's interesting that the the more we talk about things, the more you realize how connected everything is. You know, we, we keep having this theme coming up of of the importance of recognizing systems and and blaming systems and looking to change systems. Um, 
And that is really resonating with me. And I think, you know, essentially when you're with the gun violence issue, when you're when you're saying, oh, it's mental health or it's this or that, like, let's just put aside the fact that you're saying that it's mental health, but you're not actually doing anything to improve right, mental exactly, health in this country. Exactly. Um, but even that feels like you're blaming the individual, right? It's not a bigger, it's not a, it's not a result of our system. It's not something our cr- is created by the system. And, and as long as you're doing that, you're never going to actually solve the problem because you have to be able to recognize how systems work and how this system is contributing to violence. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my final thought, I guess. Yeah, I hear you. And it's like, right, if, if you just tweak at the uh, tweak the edges of a system, you're not going to solve the problem. And um, and so, yes, mental health is important. Yes, uh, background checks are important. But right, if you really want to get deep into the gun issue, it's like, why are people so why are men um, so obsessed with guns? And what are the cult? What, what are the cultural elements that led us to this right and you get back to slave patrols right you get back to this idea of like when you are a minority controlling a a powerful person controlling a bunch of a a powerful minority controlling a large group of people that you are oppressing you are constantly afraid that those people are going to revolt this is the truth in colonialism this is the truth in 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 american slavery and, and 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 american colonialism as well and so there always has to be a stick the stick is the most important thing the whip is the most important thing the gun is the most important thing and i think frankly that's where it really comes from i think that's where the, and that is what that is the systemic issue Right? Which is so human, right? It's fear. so human. It's fear. fear, and if you can Absolutely. recognize that, you can start to undo it. But exactly, but no, we don't want to do that. No, right? we want right. to blame black fathers for that. Black fathers, right? Black fathers is where is where we come, and that's like, and again, uh, I, I'm surprised they hadn't brought trans people into this, right? I'm um, sure, like somehow this is somehow they'll find somehow related to trans people, right? Bathrooms, I don't know what, right. what else. Wokeism, I, you know, I mean, that's what that right. Blame it's the victim of the system. Always blame the victim of the system. Um, don't blame the folks who are profiting from the system, which is a handful of very very wealthy gun executives. I mean, that's what this comes down to. That's there, right? I mean, there, they, and and I mean, anyway, we could go on and on about that, but <laughs> but really but, it, but but it really, really is, and I think that like, I think uh, you, there's only so many things we can do as individuals, but I do think that what we can do, and we talk about this a lot, is look at ourselves and and yeah. uh, and consider ourselves. But um, in any event, um, I want everyone out there to remember. Thank you, by the way, for being here. And also remember that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays on all the major podcast channels. Please connect with us on social media because we love you and we want to talk to you. Until next time, please care for each other, share your experience, strength, and hope with each other and with the people you love.